ovens, hot out of the oven. Full disclosure, I'm Robin Farzad. Oh, do you know the Muffin Man, the Muffin Man, the Muffin Man? Do you know the Muffin Man who lives on Drury Lane? The restaurant business is like 16, 17% of our economy, and yet it's a terrible business. It's dirt farming. And the reality is unless you can create something that offers a better alternative to guests to get them to walk past your competitors and choose you, it's going to be a business you don't want to be in. Alas, we do know the Muffin Man. He's the founder and chairman of Panera Bread. And we have him talking on the explosion of fast casual restaurants and the trouble with the short-term thinking on Wall Street. So stay with us. This episode is made possible by Elwood Thompson's. Let me tell you about Elwood's Cafe in the ICA at VCU because I just checked it out and it is gorgeous. You can find it at 601 West Broad Street inside the brand spanking new Institute for Contemporary Art at VCU. They share a passion for celebrating the artistry and culture of the Richmond community. Elwood's is thrilled to be their partner. It's a space where you can go to create connections, exchange ideas, and share some healthy local house-made food and drink. You must check it out, even on a gloomy day. It's gorgeous. It's this glass, concrete, and stone edifice with uh, a gorgeous cafe in the lobby. Stop by and enjoy some locally roasted coffee, fresh squeezed organic raw juice, and smoothies, bagels, pastries, sandwiches, wraps, flatbreads, teas, kombuchas, beer, wine, cider, and dessert. ElwoodThompsons.com. Joining me from NPR New York City is none other than Ron Shake, founder and chairman of Panera, the massive fast casual chain that started with like a twinkle in his eye in Boston in 1981. Uh, by this year, I think they have more than 2,000 locations. He's also chairman of Kava, which is growing expansively. Sir, how are you? Good to speak to you, Robin. How are you? I'm great. Uh, we have a couple of compliments and laments. Uh, John Valentine, our audio engineer, absolutely loves your broccoli cheddar <laughs> soup. Yes, and he's not course. a broccoli person. Um, I know my brother-in-law likes it too. My wife, Karen, complains that you discontinued the icy spice. <laughs> yes. Well, I, I have to tell you, millions of people across the country uh, like the um, the broccoli soup. Uh, I can't tell you as many people like the product your wife liked. Oh, I'm sorry. But then uh, Jenny, listener, says, tell them to bring back the steak Asiago sandwich and shame on them for taking it away. Okay. I think it speaks to the fact that in my knowing Panera, as I told you, I first went to that location uh, about a mile or two away from Harvard Business School. In the mid-2000s, you guys really turned the, the Watertown Arsenal, which I think was a super fun site and a historic site, into a gorgeous flagship location there. And I do some of my best writing and research and reporting, and it even inspired me to buy the stock, which I think I bought around $50 a share. How'd you uh, do with the stock, Robin? You know, I sold too early because you guys had hiccups with uh, – you know, nighttime stuff. I think there was a jazz band that would show up there. Pizza didn't work. Apple pies didn't work. You were thinking about a lobster roll. And it was stupid of me because then it four-bagged after that. But I think it speaks to the point that you guys never rested on your laurels. You were constantly iterating, constantly looking for the new thing to keep soccer moms and, and starving riders interested alike. Comment on that. Well, you know, the truth is Panera has been the best-performing restaurant stock of the last 20 years, over the last two decades. Its performance was three times Starbucks, five times Chipotle, 44 times the S&P 500 over its last 20 years as a public company. And that essentially meant we delivered 25 percent um, annual returns over those two decades. And somebody told me several months ago, 
we actually beat Warren Buffett's Berkshire Hathaway. So the 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 the, the, the piece to it, um, I'm I'm sorry you didn't get quite the return that that other shareholders saw. But the trick was anybody who held the stock for the long term, really stuck with it, actually did phenomenally well. And I think it's because we were continually committed to thinking long term, to f- really trying to determine today what would matter tomorrow and then transforming the company into the, un, un, into the unfolding future. And I got to ask you, because a couple of years ago, you got off the Wall Street treadmill. The stock was gangbusters, and you managed to get a premium sale price. You sold it to a German conglomerate, JAB, for $7.5 billion. You told Fortune that that was bittersweet. You said, I wasn't really looking for this in any way. To be honest, we've been hugely successful. It said that you're... Uh, you know, from inception, you started from one location in Boston, went to about 2,000 locations and more than $5 billion in annual system-wide sales. The interesting thing about JAB, which is uh, an enigma to so many people following the restaurant industry and, and consumer packaged goods and the like, is look at the portfolio that they have in addition to Panera. They have Curry Green Mountain, Krispy Kreme Donuts, Pete's Coffee and Tea, and they've just been rolling these up over five years. Why did this particular um, sponsor acquire or interest you the most? Well, you know, I was not selling the company. And, and, but, I, but I had a, a, a really uh, deep understanding. And what I understood is over um, the 36 years that this company, that I ran this company, um, it transformed itself every six to seven years and in powerful kinds of ways. It was from that transformation, from those transformative events that we actually created this powerful shareholder value um, that emerged from Panera. Having said that, I worry deeply about our ability to continue to do that um, into the future. And I worried because the truth of the matter is that when you're going through transformation as Panera did, nothing is ever proven until it's done. And the truth of the matter is that I worried that um, if, if I weren't running the company, if I weren't in a position where I could vote 17% of the company stock because that's the percentage of the stock that I essentially voted, I worried deeply that if the leader of the company didn't have the kind of credibility I had, how do you make those kinds of commitments? And it had become my, my observation having run a public company um, for, for over 26 years that the, the, the markets have become pervasively short-term. We can talk about why that's happened. There's well, I very... want to back up. Something makes sure. retail indeed peculiar and restaurants peculiar. You are not just accountable for quarterly earnings and guidance. And these, you know, that's the trade-off. You're getting a big infusion when you go public. You get to ring the bell maybe if you're doing it at the NASDAQ or something like that. It was last glorious. Wait, Robin, you don't even ring the bell anymore. No, you There's don't even no ring the bell. bell anymore. It's just that. Right. It's that, all electronic. You know, there used to be bells and whistles to it and yes. there used to be an excitement to it. But ultimately you get an enormous currency to spend on acquisitions and capital uh, campaigns and, and CapEx and the like. But the flip side of that is that you are – hugely accountable to Wall Street, the sell side, and institutional investors. So Wall Street, I remember the sell side people who would follow you, they're scrutinizing you on same store sales, comp store sales. We're not seeing improvement at the breakfast level. We're seeing a drag from, you know, they're they're taking too much in terms of expense and devoting it to this apple pie product, which makes the place smell great, but it it, it it's it's like a it, a manpower drain. And then there was this activist uh, investor I remember in two thousand seven, Shamrock 
and and 2015 Luxor Capital, they both kind of held you up to to issue debt to buy shares. And that takes your eye off the, the, the restaurant operating ball. Yeah, no question, Robin. Look, at the world has changed in the 26 years that I ran a public company. When, when, when I be, 40 years ago, the average shareholder owned a share of stock for eight years. Today, the average shareholder rents a share of stock for eight months on average. Think about that change. There's a lot of reasons for why that's happened, but it's the reality of what's happened. The world, the investment community, the way in which decisions are made have become increasingly short-term. Start with, 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 with um, hedge funds. They're increasingly looking not at the long-term value creation of an enterprise. They're looking at what's the next inflection point? What's the next comps? What are you going to – what are the results last week? Because they're competing on that basis. Active money managers are being marked to market quarterly. They're being incented on quarterly results. You can start to look at the influx of, of, of algorithm-based flash trading, a large percentage of the marketplace. That just magnifies these kinds of changes. And then, Robin, begin to think about the impact of, of index funds and how much larger they have become. Typically, they are not exerting um, any, any position relative to corporate governance. Um, they're outsourcing it to ISS and they're outsourcing well, it to we'll, Glass We'll get Lewis. to that because some of it is lost in the jargon. But take us back to help our listeners to sure. the inception of this story, the early 80s. I could tell you that uh, Christopher Cross uh, was, was Grammy bound. I think it was like Ride Like the Wind and yeah. Sailing. 1981, it was a glorious year. It was morning in America. And, and there you are in Boston. Walk me through this. You, would you like to walk through the story of the company, or do you want to well, look at, I, I, at what's going on in the market? My familiarity with this was Aubon Pan in the early '90s yeah. buying so, St. So, Louis so bread look and then refolding yeah, so it let, out. Let's so. let's talk about transformation. Yeah, because Panera is created and rooted in transformation. Its greatest skill is its ability to transform. You can go all the way back. We were a a, a cookie store in 1981. I opened right out of business school, 400 square feet. I merged that with a French bakery called Au Bon Pain. They had three stores. They were essentially going down the tubes. We put the three French bakeries together with that single Au bon, with the single cookie store I owned. And we created a new company in 1981 called Au Bon Pain Co. Inc. Within three years, it was very clear to me that, that, that the action was not in the bakery product themselves, but it was actually in using the croissant and bread as a platform to sell sandwiches, uh, and and the like. Um, and that was a major transformation, an understanding of that. And once that occurred, we did that in 1984 in Copley Place in Boston. We created the first French bakery cafe in America. The business took off in, in, in a huge kind of way. And everybody and their brother came after us, Sara Lee, Pepsi, come to call Vita France. They all attempted to duplicate it. They all had more capital. They all were larger. But they didn't have what we have, which was people that cared, people that were connected. And by 1991, we were the most successful player in what was then called French Bakery Cafes. In 1991, we took the, public, the company public. Back then, in 1991, Robin, long-term money was in the public market. Let me remind people what was happening in 1991 in your industry. I remember 
Around that time, everybody was talking about Boston Chicken's IPO. Mm. There was a bagel bubble. If you remember Einstein, Noah, Chesapeake Bagel Company, there was a rotisserie chicken bubble, Cluckers, Kenny Rogers Roasters. There was a steakhouse. You know, I, 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 I once for Business Week interviewed Chuck Schwab, and he told us about these little bublets in history that people forget about. And maybe it's the tail wagging the dog, and bankers are going out looking for new concepts that fit that narrative to take public. Yeah, I think that, that um, you know, the markets love a growth story and any opportunity they have to buy or sell growth is what gets people excited. Having said that, that's not what running a company is about. Growth is a byproduct of actually being a better competitive alternative and actually delivering something that's materially better so for Ron, your So, Ron, guests. will you tell me what you raised in 91, what that experience was like? I mean – did you well, go through big banks, a small bank? Yeah, we, we actually, Morgan Stanley took us public. Uh-huh. Um, so it was a very large bank. Um, and I think we raised, I don't know what it was, 75 or $100 million, small by today's standards. And then a couple of years later, Aubon Pan, which is already public, buys the St. Louis Bread Company for less than $25 million. And that's a critical moment because it allows you in the 90s to effectively transmogrify from Aubon Pan, which became airport and, and office building centric at least in my experience in New York and Miami and D.C. and Boston, to something that was slower cooking that everybody was talking about. Yes, but, but, but here was the point. It is to face reality, to tell yourself the truth. And what I understood in the early 90s was that the market was paying for growth. I was running a public company, and the reality was we needed to provide that growth, but the reality was also Obon Penn had limited growth. It worked well, as you said, in New York and Boston and Washington, high-intensity urban locations. It didn't work in the malls. It didn't work in suburbia. And so in the early to mid-'90s, I allowed our, our company to enter into a number of other businesses. We built a manufacturing business in the Midwest. We decided to go international. And then I bought a small 19-store chain in St. Louis, which at that time was called the St. Louis Bread Company. I bought it for $23 million. I thought maybe we could build, I don't know, 300, 500 stores. The guy I bought it from uh, is a very dear friend. Um, he, he knew we would take good care of it. Uh, and in fact, we did. One of the most beautiful parts of this whole story is today, um, now 25-odd years later, um, we still love each other. He took the money we paid him for the St. Louis Bread Company, became our franchisee, and ended up with a business four times larger than the business he sold us and um, with a sense that he had done right and we had done right by him. But at any rate, the second major transformation for us came after we bought the St. Louis Bread Company. I was um, beginning to, to try to figure out what was evolving in the world. And, and again, my, my goal is to discover today what's going to matter tomorrow and then position my company to, 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 to essentially compete in that unfolding world. And the second transformation for us occurred after the purchase of St. Louis Bread Company. And I began to realize as I traveled the country that customers, consumers wanted to feel special in a world where, where, where almost everything in food was mass marketed and, and, and essentially the same. And that, that there were many, many consumers who, who wanted both bakery and fast food. They wanted it to be genuinely special. They wanted real food. They wanted environments that engaged them. They wanted um, To they give wanted you an idea, I mean, what was, not, what was novel to me when I first walked into a Panera circa 2003 in Boston was the silverware, um, plates, 
uh, a fireplace, brick walls, uh, people bringing out samples of things. You weren't as hurried as you were in the kind of the Obon Pan plastic setting. But you know what people really wanted and we understood? They wanted to feel special in a world in which so many food establishments weren't. You know, fast food had grown up. From the 50s, it was nothing. By 1990, it was, uh, you know, it was 60,000 units in America. It was hundreds of billions of dollars. It was essentially a self-service gasoline station for the human body with most of the volume going through the drive throughs And people began to say, I want to feel special in a world in which I'm not. And I, we, 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 it was very clear to us about one in three consumers held their noses when they went into fast food. And we came along, uh, the, you know, Howard Schultz at Starbucks came along at the same time. And I think that we all began to understand that the product we were really selling is people's own self-respect, to give them a food experience they respected. And that was the paradigm that defined it. Now, that became, it's hard for me to believe, that became what is today called fast casual, which is a $50 billion segment of the restaurant industry and the largest in, uh, the, or the, uh, the, the fastest growing segment of the industry. But the point is studying and listening to consumers, trying to genuinely give them something of value is where that, that, that powerful understanding came from within Panera. You know, the restaurant business is like 16, 17% of our economy. And yet it's a terrible business. It's dirt farming. And the reality is unless you can create something that offers a better alternative to guests to get them to walk past your, your competitors and choose you, it's going to be a, a, a business you don't want to be in. And so what we continue to search for and we were searching for in the early 90s is what is it people want? And that understanding they wanted to feel special in a world where most food establishments were anything but special was a powerful understanding that not only led to the creation of or the evolution of St. Louis bread and the creation of Panera, but also led to what is now called fast casual. Full disclosure, I'm Robin Farzad. You're listening to Ron Sheikh. He's founder and chairman of Panera, also now chairman of Kava, which you are increasingly seeing across suburbanistan USA. Uh, I wonder, uh, to take you back to the 80s or when you were in B-school, do you ever ask yourself if somebody had come Robin, up— Robin, I'm, I'm older than you, 70s. I know, I know you are. We got we to gotta meet up. You got to treat me to an icy spice. I think you're the only person that can get me one mixed on demand. Um, Absolutely. I would love to know, uh, these are kind of the counterfactual things. If somebody came to you in B-school um, and said, here is a business plan for— effectively a Starbucks. What would you have said in the early 80s compared to what this company turned into and how coffee has become so ubiquitous? Um, very interesting. I, I, I don't think I've ever told this story, but in the I graduated in 1976 from college. And in 1975, a, a friend of mine uh, in college and I um, were looking at a local um, coffee retailer in Worcester, Massachusetts, and thought, what an interesting idea. I wondered if this was expandable. And um, I can remember thinking to myself, this was the kind of product that if you did it with differentiation, if you did it with specialness, could have um, real power. So I've, I've always felt that. Um, and I've had great respect for, for what my friend Howard and the, the folks at, at Starbucks have done. On the other hand, I've also fully understood that, that for Panera, as for any business, the key is not to try to be what everybody else is. The key is to try to be what we are, 
and what Panera was so powerfully, what Panera is um, to this day and continues to be, as the best alternative when you want uh, a baked good with your coffee, as the best alternative when you want food um, and you really want lunch, and in particular, the best place if you want to gather and you don't simply want to put on a pair of headphones and sit up against everybody, but you Cor- want to spread correct, out. Correct, but as you know, with the new parent company, there's also a very high bar for coffee. It brings, you know, my father-in-law, who has that first Panera location here, who he loves, which has now been kind of tricked out with a drive-through and, yeah. you know, pickup apps and, and uh, uh, little kind of mini iPads when you walk in and serve yourself coffee. We wonder, for example, uh, now that you're in this happy family of JAB, why something as elite as Pete's Coffee is not offered at every Panera location? Well, I, I, we're, we're into another question, which is where does Panera go from here? And I think one of the things about the folks at JAB um, that I profoundly respect is their willingness and commitment to let management teams manage their businesses. And so the team running J, uh, Panera right now um, is very focused on their view of what is the best way to bring Panera and to, to serve their guests. And I think that, that that's one of the strengths of JEB, that they actually let their management teams, um, they incent them and let their management teams. But really I got I to gotta, I gotta tell you, and I, and I love you, but I'm pushing back here. I don't love the coffee. I think the coffee, to my mind, and, and maybe you guys have scrutinized this, is maybe just fine for a soccer mom or a hurried mom or a person coming in who's not so, going to scrutinize the coffee. But you now have Pete's. Robin, are you suggesting soccer moms aren't discriminating customers? Well, I'm, I'm saying that maybe you can really up the bar. Look, Starbucks is up the bar here. They have a drive through They have coffee that I don't love going to a Starbucks. I love going to a Panera. Corner bakeries across the street. Uh, Duncan is now decidedly focused on coffee. You have uh, now on parts of the East Coast the coffee bean and tea leaf or blue bottle. Um, as you know, it's it's kind of trench warfare out there. Yeah, and you know, I'll tell you something straight up. So I I I think that each company has to understand who it is, what it is, and how it competes. In 2017, the last year I was um, CEO of Panera. Panera's comp store sales or same store sales were six percent. Significantly better than Starbucks, which I think, if I recall correctly, was three or four percent, maybe two or three percent. It was the single best that I know of among public restaurant companies in 2017. The truth of the matter is, Panera, through a number of different mechanisms, has 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 really delivered, and that's inclusive of everything that it does. What Panera offers is authority, quite frankly, in baked goods, authority in in food and um, authority in a range of beverages done in such a way that that Panera is um, a better solution for breakfast. You've got a great new breakfast sandwich out there uh, that is that is superb with a yolk that 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 opens up. Um, it's a powerful solution um, for lunch with soup salad and sandwiches. And it's a great place to gather um, midday if you want to have a meeting, you want to have a Bible study group, you want to write the next American novel. And finally, it's a place that my wife and I will use when we're out shopping at Target. We've got 45 minutes before the movie, and we stop in and grab some food. So I, I, I will tell you that um, I think the story of Panera is the story of, of, of really focusing on our target customer and delivering for them. So I shouldn't even bother asking if there's a possibility that Krispy Kreme donuts will find their way in your stores. 
Um, as I said, I'm not oh, active. I'm, right, right. No, what <laughs> but I, I, we, I, I get whimsical thinking that Keurig is now a, a relative. I mean, Aubon Pan is brought back in. You get, you get excited thinking about these things. But then again, you were really efficient in iterating and, and, you know, bringing things to light and then killing them when they didn't work and moving to the next thing. By way of background, I'm quoting a, a, an article in The New Yorker, which interviewed you, Sheila Cole Hotkar, who I used to work with at Business Week. She yes. said, by 2010, Panera was opening a new store approximately every three days and had more than a billion dollars in annual sales. But the financial crisis had made consumers more cautious with their spending. To keep them coming, you developed a system for digital ordering, a catering and delivery service, and a loyalty program. These programs required significant investment, but they paid off. By 2017, Panera had become one of the most successful restaurant chains in the U.S., and much of the industry adopted its innovations. It now has more than 2,000 locations and more than 100,000 employees. It also has one of the industry's best-performing stocks. So that's the challenge, right? You were a Wall Street firm that barely got enough space from the analysts and the buy-side community to make these investments. Yeah, and, and, and so let, let, let's talk about two separate transformations. And Robin, Robin you want to cover the, the third one, which was this, I think, I'm going to go off the record here, the sale of, of all the other businesses but Panera, because it's a great story. Um, but, but there, there, you know, when, when we talk about Panera, it not only made that transformation, that first transformation from a bakery to a bakery cafe, that second transformation to become and redefine itself as, as, as fast casual and deliver against it. But, but the third transformation for Panera, and one of the most um, definitive in its history, occurred in, in, in 1998. And by 1998, it became clear to me that Panera, which was um, one of four divisions in the company, uh, we had Aubonpin, Aubonpin International, and Aubonpin Manufacturing, and it was the third largest of the four, it had the potential to be a nationally dominant brand. And the truth of the matter is, Robin, very few, if any, uh, ever make it as a nationally dominant brand. It, it's tougher to become a nationally dominant brand than climb Mount Everest. And I, I remember, I can remember the weekend, Robin. I was in the Caribbean. I was telling a friend about the power of Panera and how it was the golden goose of our entire corporation. And I was worried, I told her. I was worried that, that I would mess it up, that we would mess it up, that we wouldn't take care of it because it wouldn't have the financial and human capital required to really grow it into a successful business. And I remember this friend of mine looked at me and said, Ron, what would you do if Panera owned Old Bomb Pen? And it's a paradigm shift. And I thought to myself, wow, if Panera owned Old Bomb Pen, and if Panera was really the gem, I would sell everything else, monetize everything else, sacrifice everything else to ensure that Panera had the resources the financial resources, and the human capital to really fulfill its destiny. And I'm the kind of guy that if I think something, I think about it more and more, and then I want to I be, um, I I be of integrity and go do it. And I thought about that for a couple of months, and I came back and said, this is what we have to do. And it led to the hardest decision of my business career, to sell all our other divisions, including my name, my first child, my first son, Obon <laughs> Penn, and Obonpen Manufacturing and Obonpen International to ensure um, Panera made it. And I want you to know something. That decision led to the worst year and a half of my life because we sold off these divisions with people we cared about. Fortunately, they all came back when their non-competes were over. 
Let me ask you, there was a big push, a big go private push in the aughts, in the 2000s, to take an LBO. I mean, you saw it with Dunkin' Donuts, which was a club deal. I'm sure you guys got approached for a similar transaction. What was the thinking behind that? I mean, you ultimately went to a a friendly, a long-term portfolio uh, strategic investor. But why not take it private when you were finally getting fed up with the whole comp store, same store, Wall Street treadmill? Well, one of the one of the issues for us is our stock has always been a high flyer over these these long many years, and so it would have been very difficult to do a, a financially engineered take a private transaction because of the, the the valuations it was trading at. But straight up, I was never selling this company. The price was always X plus one. Whatever you offered me, it was one dollar more because I wasn't inclined to selling it. And I still wasn't inclined to selling it. Um, I will tell you, JB is not a strategic buyer in the sense that we're being merged into another company. Uh, I don't think they got 10 people in their entire organization centrally. JB is essentially long-term evergreen money that invests in businesses and management teams for the long term. What else can you tell me about them? Because it is so shrouded in secrecy. I think I have a rare chance here. We have Ron in studio. We have the the benevolent, shadowy German conglomerate that seems to be buying up every hot chain in the United States and abroad? Well, I can tell you that that when they approached me, um, the deal that I was left with was the largest U.S. restaurant deal ever done at the second highest multiples of a, of a public restaurant company. So they made me a very powerful offer, and they did so um, along with that um, – offering us the opportunity to equify our, our management team. Equify. Yes, which Gosh. means to allow them to gain more equity in the company than they might if we were uh, going to maintain ourselves as a public company. And I felt more importantly that with one partner uh, in JAB, we would be far better able to, um, rem- to stay the course and not um, deal with the ups and downs and the flavor of the month of a increasingly short-term public marketplace. And for example, franchise company ratios, big issue in the restaurant industry. Used to be you wanted to be in, 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 in all company operations. Increasingly, we've entered a world of what they're called asset, asset light models where you want to be uh, all franchised. Um, I mean, we saw what that did to Subway restaurants, which is yes. really struggling, which is like the antithesis of what you guys did. Well, but 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 many companies have been entirely franchised, uh, whether it be um, Jack in the Box or Yum, McDonald's themselves. There's been such a pressure on this. My belief is you want balance. You want you want an, it's almost like asset allocation. You know, in 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 in, in at the height of the recession, you wish you had all debt. The last eight years, you wish you had all equity. The truth is you want a balance. Same in running restaurants. You want franchised because that gets you development. It gets you a, 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 a higher return on capital. But you also want company-owned stores. You want to put your own flesh and blood into it. You want to have the human capabilities to transform as I've transformed Panera any is, number is of times. Is JAB publicly traded abroad? No, it is not. So here's it, the interesting thing. It, to be clear, it's it's – it, it is um, – its roots are back to family money. It's institutional capital. It has no terminal point. Um, There's no central they... muffin man or, or you know, Swedish prince or something because I'm looking at this thing. Fortune says it's too early to say what JB plans to do with Panera. But 
The acquisitions of JB include Krispy Kreme, Keurig, Caribou Coffee, and Einstein Noah. So you're actually now a cousin company with a former rival, which was Einstein's Bagels, which I went to on Monday to pick up a ton of bagels for the fam, which now serves Caribou Coffee. Wait a second, Robin. Why weren't you at Panera? I got to tell you, the the bagels, at least the the water alkalinity in central Virginia, it's more like a dinner roll. You can't get a great bagel in this part of the country. Well, how about Panera? Uh, Yeah. um, I love your your cobblestone, whatever that thing is called. (laughs) No, that's not not a bagel. I know, but I'm trying to change the subject. I don't go there for (laughs) the bagels. All right. uh, Robin, we may have to end this interview. My feelings are hurt. I don't want to hurt your feelings because, you know, at a younger age when I was less discriminating before I moved to New York, of course, I'd go into an Aubon pan or a Panera and have a bagel and they'd give me the cream cheese on the side. Now, uh, my point is, is this company has the entire spectrum, as Fortune put it. Krispy Kreme at the low end, Einstein, Noah in the middle, and Panera as the most premium player. It's almost like a mutual fund of, of aspirational restaurant brands. Yeah, and they've recently bought Pret-a-Manger as well. Pret. Yes. Wow, which used to be owned by McDonald's, right? Well, in the very early days. McDonald's but... used to own Chipotle, which I think was one of the worst divestitures ever. I mean, gosh, had they just sat on that thing? Well, here's the question. What would have happened to Chipotle if McDonald's had maintained it? That's a good Often answer. the issue in business is what would have happened if something didn't happen, and we often forget that. Ron, I do have a question. I was in D.C. recently doing a, something at the BBC studios, and right downstairs they have this, this Panera-type prototype. It, it seems to resemble what an Aubon pan used to be. It's small. It isn't as sit-down as much as possible. You do have... Uh, bagels in the back. It's kind of a walk-up carry-out place. Um, when did you roll those out, or was it like finding your, your earlier religion? Well, let, let me say it to you. So this third transformation we had was really the bet on Panera. The fourth transformation really occurred around 2010. Right. And let me just step you back and tell you, I had stepped down as CEO, um, and I was essentially remaining executive chairman. I was the largest shareholder. I was basically focused on customer-facing initiatives and acquisitions. And I was working, um, trying to help reduce some of the hyper-partisanship in Congress. This was another interest of mine. But I was out over a weekend, and I wrote a memo over a weekend in 2010 describing how I would compete with Panera if I weren't part of Panera. And I shared it with Bill Morton, who'd become our CEO. And Bill turned to me and he said, Ron, would you go work on this? And I started to work on this vision we had um, of, 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 of how we would, would compete. And it was the, I must tell you, I started to have so much fun creating this vision. It was sort of a re-energizing of my entrepreneurial spirit. Some point later, Bill had a, a personal problem. He wasn't able to travel. And he asked me if I would come back as CEO. Uh, I, 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 I tried to avoid it for some period of time, but eventually I did. I came back as CEO. He became executive vice chairman. And in, in 2011, as I came back as CEO, I put that vision that I had had, how I would compete with Panera if I weren't part of Panera, I put that vision into, into place. And that vision at the core of it was about being a better competitive alternative through digital access, which became known as Panera 2.0, and through something called operational discipline. Secondly, I was out looking for what I call runways for growth. And it was very clear to me there were a number of other businesses, billion-dollar-plus businesses that were adjacent to what Panera did that we could enter. What did that include? It included catering. It included delivery. It included um, uh, consumer products or selling Panera through your supermarkets. 
And then third, that plan called for having capabilities to actually deliver on those key initiatives. And what were those capabilities? One, we had to take a digital function, an IT function, which was really third world, and move it up to being first world. And simultaneously, we had to build the human capabilities to take on these changes. And then fourth, if we were going to take on these changes and really evolve Panera to recompete, we needed to have the resources as a public company to both pay for it and hold our credibility through that transformation. And so in 12 and third, 2012 and 2013 and 14, I put all of this in place. And the reality is by 2017, we, it was winning. We were dominating the industry. Our, our, our wellness and clean program um, had become powerful. We had the highest standards in the restaurant industry. Um, well, uh, it seems for, like you. It seems like you annex the the adjective clean. I was seeing clean everywhere. I was seeing TV ads for the first time. Clean pairings. Can you tell me exactly what clean means? It means free of all artificial colors, flavors, preservatives, and artificial sweeteners. So there was nothing hydrogenated, nothing yeah, monodiglycerides. It most. It was mostly rooted in ingredients you could understand. You don't need a dictionary or a food scientist to go to a restaurant. And, and, and the reality is that all Panera did is, is um, say, we're going to remove this stuff so that you can feel safe when you walk in. You don't need uh, to worry about the science behind it. You just know that in some way it's got a good housekeeping seal of approval. And we were the first a national restaurant company to produce a, a, a clean menu. But that was only part of it, Robin. It was clean. Um, it, we also re-energized the environments. We re-energized the food. But what else did we do? We came along and we built um, what became uh, the most successful digital um, operation in the restaurant industry. Uh, today, $2 billion in sales in Panera, $2 billion are digitally uh, ordered. And not only that, but over 30% of our sales are now digital. It's the largest digital percent of any restaurant chain in America, except the big three pizza guys, all of whom have um, uh, uh, digital ordering as part of their, may, their may process. I, may I ask you about this, Ron? I'm sure. I, I, I now transport myself back to business school in the middle aughts, and there I am at the gorgeous, fabulous uh, Watertown Arsenal Panera, big, airy, not too crowded if you go at the right time. If I walk into a Panera now... I see a bunch of self-order stations. I see the coffee stacked up for you. I see a little LCD display for the people picking up their foods, what's ready on the shelf. Um, the actual experience of – I see a drive through which, by the way, has several cars going you know, behind it. Um, the actual experience of going up and ordering now, I don't understand, you know, thinking back to my technology operations class, you yes. know, first year of business school – how all that worked, when you wrote that memo and that manifesto, how did you expect all these trains to possibly run on time? Because it's certainly, while consumer expectations lift for a drive through or for a very robust app, you also have your, your bread and butter, pardon the pun, customers who come in and want to be served and expect that 10-minute experience. Yeah, you know, the, the truth of the matter is it works powerfully. And if we go all the way back, we were doing, you know, I don't know, 20 years ago, a million dollars a unit. We're now doing $3 million a unit. And in 2017, we had the highest same-store sales of any restaurant concept that I know of among public companies. So here, here's the point, and I think you speak to it so well, Robin. It isn't simply about having a digital app. 
That doesn't mean anything. Nobody's ever woken up and said, I'm going to a restaurant because it has a digital app. What I care about is being able to get my food more quickly. And the understanding Panera had is, why do you have to come to the restaurant and wait in line and then wait for your food to get made? Why couldn't you have your food made simultaneously with your trip to the restaurant and have it waiting for you when you get there? And then what Panera did, what we did in 2012 and 2013, is instead of rolling out that app, we stopped and rebuilt all of the operating procedures to enable us to keep up with the volumes that digital enabled. Now, will you explain this? The drive-thrus have a separate dedicated kitchen? It's not like you can order on the app and then go pick it up through the drive-thru, right? That is correct. So why, why specifically? You would think that that would make sense, that you're taking up less time in the line if you're just going to pick up. You don't have to get out of the car. But those two are actually across purposes. No, I don't think so. I think that they allow different consumers, different guests to hire Panera for the jobs that they want. So let, let me try to explain it to you. And I think I'll explain it to you by way of some stories, how these things all grew. So, so drive-through came first. Where did drive-through come from? It came from listening to consumers, often listening to myself. I had little kids at the time, and I'd have them in seatbelts in the back. And I can remember on a Saturday afternoon, I wanted that, that Caesar salad at Panera. I wanted it very much, and my kids wanted a cinnamon crunch bagel. But the truth of the matter is, facing the prospect of driving into the store, parking, getting them out of those seatbelts, getting into line, then going over to the what I used to call the mosh pit and waiting for the food was too much. And I began to understand. What's wrong with that? I would go in and charm one of your cashiers. I'd sing a little Luther Vandross. Somebody would well, throw me a free cookie. I mean, that's what, I mean, personal interaction, Ron. That's what I mean, it was all know, about. You know, Robin, that may be what you want. And that may be what I want certain times of the day. But that may not be what I want all the time. And our job as a business, our job as Panera, is to figure out what's going to meet your needs and serve you. Let me share with you a second one which was the development of what we call rapid pickup, which is ordering digitally and having the food waiting for you. It's interesting where it came from. I used to drive my kids to school. And I, I can remember, I'd drive them to school and I'd say to my wife, I'm going to go for double brownie points. I'll get them not just breakfast, I'll get them lunch. And we would begin the drive to school. Usually we'd be late because we're always late in my family. We'd, 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 the kids, I'd say, where do you want to go? They'd all say, we want to go to Panera. There was a Panera along our path to, to school, and I was running late, and I, 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 I'd, I'd pick up the phone. I'd call the store. I wouldn't let anybody take the order. I'd ask for the manager. I'd give the manager my order. We'd get to the store. I'd hand my son, Michael, my, my American Express card. I'd say, run in and get the food. They're going to have it waiting for you. He'd be out in about 30 seconds, and I'd be driving um, on the way to school after having picked up the food, and I'd say, wow, this is an amazing system. Mm -hmm. You know, it, we, we, we got our food to go, and we got our breakfast and a lunch, and it was we were in and out in under 30 seconds. This is wonderful. But what about the other 11 million customers a week who visited Panera? I said, this is great for the CEO, but what about everybody else? And that's when I said, why can't we use digital to allow everybody to have that order placed directly to the store? And why can't that go right into the production systems that build the food? And why can't we create that? Because that's meeting a need for a guest. So adjacently to this, and every everybody, we had a you know, the founder of Sugar Shack Donuts, which is a growing chain here in the um, you know mid Atlantic of, of uh, you know high end donuts, say that the biggest complaint and lament right now is 
finding and retaining good people. I mean, yours is necessarily definitionally kind of a burnout industry. If if people who used to have one single job description to mind the people coming in for dine-in or carry-out orders now have to worry about delivery, app, drive-through window, um, technology, things that go wrong in terms of you know, the bottleneck at the end of the line where someone says, I actually typed this in, but you read this. Okay, we dump it out and we put it out. Talk to me about the people element of this. Well, I think it's at the very core, isn't it? Because the, the, the real truth of the matter is the food business um, is about humanity and it's about people serving people. And, and I, will, I will tell you that, you know, looking back on my career, uh, 36 years running this company, People say to me all the time, what do you feel the most proud of? And I will tell you, it's not the numbers. It's not the market cap. um, It's not the innovation. It's the number of people that have written me letters and said being a part of Panera helped change their lives. And by that I mean working there helped get them to the next step in their life. It took care of their kids. It took care of their mortgage. It took care of, of, of... of allowing them to provide care for their parents. It also provided um, an education about how to be in a service business and actually care. And so I will tell you that, that, that the key to Panera is the people of Panera. The key to um, this 36 years of, of my work um, has been the ability to make a difference in the lives of the 125 thousand people that presently work in a Panera cafe and the millions that have worked at different times in their their lives at a Panera. Now, Ron, you've also founded the investment fund called Act 3 Holdings, which you say offers capital and fewer time constraints to entrepreneurs in the restaurant biz. Uh, The Mediterranean chain Cava, which is super hot, is one of your investments. Comment on uh, what suddenly the Uber Eats phenomenon and, and, and benchmark and paradigm does to everything. Suddenly, I mean, my brother in Miami is really into Uber Eats. Every restaurant must deliver now, even if it subcontracts it to this kind of amorphous third party that treats, uh, you know, dinner or $50 of dinner as a passenger to be delivered to your door. You could have a restaurant that's 20 miles away that will suddenly deliver to you. You guys, you own the delivery itself now. I see Panera vehicles. That, those are employees of Panera? Yeah. So, so I mean, there's much in your question, Robin. As usual, yes, of course. And 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 let, let me let me share with you something, uh, which I think your your readers are. Let me share with you something which I think your listeners will appreciate. The truth of the matter is, it's very easy in an industry like the restaurant industry, which has a flavor of the month. There's always something hot, and today delivery is hot. But the key to it is not looking at your competitors. And, and seeing what they're doing, the key is to figure out what's going to matter to your guests and is actually going to meet a need. And the truth of the matter is, for Panera, we've been working on delivery for six years. It didn't just happen overnight, and it didn't happen because we're following other people. The result is Panera is producing some of the highest volumes um, in delivery um, in, in, in the restaurant industry per unit. It's about our commitment to making delivery a central part of our business as opposed to an add-on because everybody else is doing it. And so my point is that that so much of what is often talked about as, um, um, as somebody doing it, you need to look deeper and understand how they're doing it and what their level of commitment is. As I said to you, Panera is now leading in clean and wellness. Panera is now leading in digital. 
It has the highest digital percent of any restaurant company outside the big three pizza guys. Panera is leading in loyalty. It has the largest loyalty program in the restaurant industry. Um, it has over 50% of its transactions going through its loyalty program. And Panera is today leading in what's called omnichannel, which is delivery and catering. These are large businesses for Panera and have rooted this very um, significant success um, we've seen in the last couple of years. Close us out in the six or seven minutes we have left. Give us predictions, hot tips. I mean, everybody's talking about the Frankenburger and the the Holy Grail being the the, the vegan burger where you can uh, control for impact and cholesterol and a less cruel burger and uh, certain things we're seeing in the industry. I mean, for example, could you ever have imagined that Amazon, briefly the largest company in all of retail on the planet, would would buy someone like a Whole Foods and innovate in the restaurant industry? Yes, I actually was on the the board of Whole Foods when that transaction oh, occurred. Small world, sir. Yes. So, um, look at I, I I don't think um, the restaurant industry is susceptible, um, even though it may feel it to consumers, um, ultimately to fads and to flavors of the month. I think that that what the restaurant business has been for a very long time, and will continue to be about is about serving the spe- serving specific needs of individual customers. And that the key in the restaurant industry is to know who your customer is, to know what they're hiring you for, and to actually delivering it. And I think that, that the reality is businesses like Panera that stay focused on their guest, try to listen to their guest, try to figure out where their guest is going, and to stay ahead of that curve are the businesses that win. Businesses that focus on what their competitors are doing, trying to copy, trying to be the flavor of the month, they're always the businesses that fall by the wayside. The truth of the matter is, the role of leading any business is discovering today what's gonna matter tomorrow and making sure your business is there when the future arises. So what is the next frontier in that technologically? I could not have imagined what a Panera looks like today, you know, 10 years ago to go back to that arsenal of Watertown experience with all the bells and whistles, with the drive-through, with the various counters, with the LCD screen saying whose pickup orders are in the queue. What is it going to look like 10 years hence? Yeah, I think you have two things that are going to go on um, in the future that are that are material and large. Um, first, I think there's going to be uh, really a battle for who's going to control the gateways um, to digital ordering and to, to, to restaurants. There's only a limited number of apps you're going to have on your phone. You've got some very big players moving into digital ordering, whether it be Grubhub and Amazon and Uber and, and, and ultimately Google and, 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 and Apple. And the question is, um, who's going to control that access point, that gateway to your restaurant, are businesses like Panera going to control their own um, or not? And I think in particular the, the smaller chains, the regionals, even the locals are going to be um, at a loss because they are going to have less ability to control that gateway. That's one battle that's forming up. I think the, the other battle goes back to my assessment of, of, of where the, the, the food industry is going. And, Robin, I'm going to now give you 200 years of, of – of, of, of the structure of the food industry um, in about 30 seconds. The, the first major wave in, in the food industry from, from 1800 to 1950 were independent restaurants. If you wanted to go into the food business, 
All you did is open up a restaurant with your spouse and off you went. The next major um, wave in the, in the restaurant industry from 1950 to, say, 1990 was the niching of the independent restaurant. In the 1950s, people began to wake up and say, you know, I could take one product, pizza, hamburgers. I could take chicken. I could mass produce it. I could sell a lot of food for not a lot of money. I could chase the interstates. I could brand market it. And you saw the development of fast food. Fast food became a, um, a, a two or $300 billion niche of independent restaurants. By 1990, um, fast food had become everywhere in America. And every, every um, large niche leads to another niche. And by the early 90s, we saw the evolution of what became fast casual. People like me um, woke up, Schultz out at, at Starbucks, and said, you know what? People are tired of fast food. It's become commodified and processed commercial food. They want to feel special in a world in which they don't. And that was the evolution that led to what is now called fast casual, real food served by people that, that care in environments that engage you. And fast casual became a $50 billion niche of fast food, which was a niche itself of independent restaurants. And essentially, that niche has built itself out through today. I would argue the next major battleground where the growth is going to occur, the next major set of niches are what I would call specialty fast casual. And what do I mean by that? Now fast casual has become a prevailing, a prevailing um, paradigm. And I think that there's a range of different niches, one of which we're excited about, which is Mediterranean. It's why we invested in Kava. That's why we're helping Kava actually led Kava's acquisition of Zoe's. We are building the dominant Mediterranean concept in the country. We're also doing that with a series of wellness brands, Life Alive and Clover. We're doing that um, with upscale bakery cafes, a concept in Boston called Tate. Um, we're going to do that in, in entertainment. What we're really trying to do is play into the next major wave we see, which is what I would call specialty fast casual. In closing, sir, I can never get you to commit to serve Pete's Coffee and Krispy Kreme Donuts at Panera Bread. You never know what the future will bring, Robin. What a clean pairing. Robin Farzad and Ron Shake, founder and chairman of Panera. Stay starchy, my friend. Thank you. Full disclosure, our engineer is John Valentine. Special thanks to Neil Rauch at NPR New York City. We are indeed on NPR One. It's a great app. Check it out and love us. And subscribe on iTunes at linkfulldradio.com. Full disclosure is a casually clean, four-cheese, low-glycemic superfood. Please limit your Wi-Fi to 30 minutes. I'm Robin Farzad, back with you next week. 